Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. Nice to see all of you this morning. Beautiful morning. I am excited about being in God's Word. Are you? Amen. I thank the worship team this morning for leading us into a place where we can openly receive from God's Word. And uh, I just look forward to what God wants to say to us today. You? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we're looking to you today to hear from you in a mighty and powerful way because our world grows darker. We need to be more filled with your light, the light of your word. We need to understand the importance of the hour to which we've been called. We need to understand that we've been given a message, a message of hope and life everlasting. And we need to be open about it, not silenced or canceled, but rather open, empowered, and willing to share the truth at all costs. Lord, give us your love, the love of, of Christ. Give us the love that the Holy Spirit imparts to us by the gifts of the Spirit, that every word we share is shared with love, but always in truth, always the truth of your word, the truth of your gospel, the truth of righteousness, the truth about sin, the truth about judgment, and the truth about life everlasting in your Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning you can turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. And as a little recap, you'll remember that last week we saw that Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin. Stephen brought before the Sanhedrin. And he is about to be asked by the Sanhedrin to answer for what he has been preaching in Jerusalem. He's going to have to give a testimony as to what he's been saying because charges have been made against him. He was opposed by the Grecian Jews, he himself a Grecian Jew, from the synagogue of the freedmen who were from the areas around Jerusalem and around Israel, Uh, They had secretly persuaded wicked men to falsely accuse Stephen of blasphemy. And they had used their false accusations to solicit support against Stephen from among the Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem. So everyone's been turned against him. Everyone has been turned against him. So, what happens? Well... These men twisted Stephen's words, the things he shared, in order to falsely accuse him of a a crime that was punishable by death. And now Stephen responds to the high priest's question by recounting God's promise to Abraham. Look at the first question here in verse 1. The high priest says, asked him, are these charges true? Now remember, I've already shared with you what those charges were. Are these charges true? And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still living in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. 
After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living, and he gave him no inheritance here, not even a, a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. This is a, a brief history here. And, and we're not going to go into it in explicit detail. It's a narrative that's given to us to make a larger point. The larger point is this. Stephen has been called to answer to these charges that were made against him, Stephen was preaching the truth. And this is probably, more than likely, the very truth that he had been preaching. And see, his words had been twisted against him, so what he chooses to do is simply share the words that were twisted in their correct form. He's now going to share the truth that he had been sharing, but all of the things that had been said about him were taking these words that he shares here and lying, twisting, editing, fabricating different aspects of what he said in a way that would bring charges against him of blasphemy. So rather than address the charges of blasphemy, Stephen decides to simply preach the truth. Now, the thing is, it's really important to understand is that, that there is a way to deal with false accusations. One of the ways is to defend yourself. Uh, sometimes you have no other choice but to do so. But generally, I think a better method of responding to false accusations is to speak the truth. So as we get into our study today, I want to ask you a question. I want, I want us to answer this question in our hearts. Do we speak the truth? Will we speak the truth? The reason I ask that question is because many Christians today simply will not. It costs way too much to speak the truth. Or they camouflage that by saying, well, you know, I want to be loving, so I'm not going to share that truth. Brothers and sisters, there is not a truth in God's word that you could share that would not be loving. The truth about sin is loving. The truth about God's judgment is loving. The truth about right and wrong is loving. Don't let anyone tell you that any truth of God's word is hate speech. Don't let anyone tell you that to be silent is better than to speak the truth. Speaking the truth is not just our responsibility, it's our calling. And Stephen understood it, and because he spoke the truth of God's word, they came against him with false accusations, fake news, and put him in a place where he's standing before the Sanhedrin, the Congress of his day, not defending himself. Remember the question, are these charges true? Rather than responding to false charges, he simply, or even saying, I, I plead the Fifth Amendment, which they didn't really have, but they had something similar. You, you didn't have to speak if what you would say would incriminate you. So it's sort of similar to the Fifth Amendment. But he simply realizes, wow, what a wonderful opportunity to speak God's truth. The truth of God's word, and that's exactly what he does from the books of the law. He begins in Genesis and starts to talk about Abraham. 
So he responds to the high priest's question. He does answer the question. He's not, he's not evasive. He's not avoiding the question. He actually is answering the question. This is the truth that I preach. And he starts by recounting God's promise to Abraham. Now, God called Abraham. Many of you are familiar with this. And this is a summary of what you can read in the book of Genesis. But God called Abraham to believe and to obey his call to leave Mesopotamia, which is really around the area of modern-day Iraq or Kurdistan. So he left his country. He left his people. He traveled by faith on an unknown road he had never traveled before to an unknown place called Haran, which is about halfway between Mesopotamia and Israel. And then God sent Abraham to live in the land of promise, or the land of Canaan, as it was known at that time. Now, the the point that Stephen makes here is that uh, Abraham never received the land of promise, but God had promised his descendants the land of Canaan. Of course, he had no descendants at this time. He had no descendants to inherit the promise. But God had promised to give him descendants. And that promise was something that carried through Abraham's entire life. And God revealed to Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years. We know this. We are familiar with the book of Exodus. And so realize what Stephen is doing. He's going to the very word of God, the the book of the law, the books of the law, uh, the Torah, and he's answering the question with the truth of God's word. That is what we are called to do, and that's how he responded. Now, we know what the scripture tells us. They would experience, that is, the descendants of Abraham would experience 400 years of suffering and mistreatment in the land of Egypt. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with this truth. Now, Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, and Galatians 3, 17, both say that this period was actually 430 years. And some people look at this and say, well, Stephen says 400. Which is it, 430 or 400? Some people say, well, he was rounding. No, actually, the Israelites were probably treated very well for the first 30 years they were there but not afterwards. And so, yes, they were there for probably about 430 years, but 30 of those years were good years. Joseph was the prime minister, and the people of Egypt respected the Israelites. And then, as we know from Exodus, a king arose who did not know Joseph. I've often thought, did that happen while Joseph was still alive? I don't know. Possibly, probably not. But whatever the situation may be, we know this, things changed. Things changed in our world this last year. Things change. Things have been changing. Truth has never changed. But things have been changing around us. And as things change, we don't change with the times. We stand firm in the truth. Can I hear an amen? See, your job is to be that rock in the middle of a raging river that never moves. As the rapids increase and as the the, the force of the water comes against us, we are immovable as the scripture says, never wavering, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We are to be immovable. So there is no room for negotiation with the truth. We can't water it down. We can't change it. We can't make it more palatable. We can't eliminate aspects of the truth because it's illegal or unfashionable or because people don't like it. In fact, we need to be completely and totally immovable in the face of pressure that is accurately depicted by a river like the Colorado River coming against us. So God would punish the Egyptians, 
and lead Abraham's descendants to the land of Canaan. That's what was going to happen, and that's what Abraham was told. But God blessed Abraham in every way, we're told in verse 8. He gave him the covenant, the covenant of circumcision, which was an outward sign of the faith in God's promises. An outward sign of faith in God's promises. And then, and we know this account, he blessed him with his son Isaac, who was the faithful fulfillment of God's promise. And you're thinking, oh, no big deal. Well, I'll remind you that he waited 100 years for Isaac, and then another 60 years for Jacob and Esau. Now, today's Father's Day, and I don't wish all of our fathers and grandfathers and all those who are fathers a very happy Father's Day. But you really couldn't have wished Abraham happy Father's Day for the first hundred years that he waited. And you really would have had to have waited another 60 for him to say he had grandchildren. So some of you parents are waiting for grandkids. I don't think you're going to wait 60 years. Abraham did. 100 years he waited for a son, 60 years for grandchildren. And then he lived another 15 years after his grandchildren were born. Obviously, individuals lived a lot longer than, than they do now. Not surprisingly. The environment was much more pristine. Genetics were much cleaner. I don't need to tell you that if I were to take uh, our bulletin, go next door, and make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, within a very short period of time, you would not be able to read this bulletin, which is why we print them and not copy them. When you copy genes, DNA, flaws begin to happen. And as a result, our bodies are much more susceptible to cancers and other diseases. So it's not a surprise that men and women lived much longer lives thousands of years ago. So don't look at that and say, well, this proves the Bible's false. People don't live to be like hundreds of years old. Well, they did. But over time, those lifespans decreased. As the earth changed, as the environment changed, as the water level around the earth dissipated during the flood and as neutrinos and other particles were able to bombard the atmosphere in our bodies, our bodies began to decay. That's the result of sin. And so now here we are. If someone were to live to be 100 years old, we would think that that is just incredible. And yet Abraham lived to be much longer or much older. So Jacob, uh, Jacob is born. Jacob and then his 12 sons. And they're the fruit of God's promise. God promised it would happen and it happened. Although the odds were against it, although it seemed impossible, with God, all things are what? Possible. So, what is the point? Why did Stephen mention this? He's answering the high priest's question with his sermon by telling them, look, God was faithful to fulfill his promise to Abraham. That's the setup. Because, of course, Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. So we know where he's going. And now he begins to talk about Joseph. And I'm glad to share this today because some of us aren't as familiar with our Old Covenant or Old Testament books. Uh, most of you, I assume, are familiar with the book of Genesis and many of the accounts in it. But, but let me say this. It is good to remember how faithful God is to his people. Amen? So now Stephen says this in verses 9 through 16. And again, I'm going to read these sections, and then I'm just going to comment on them. 
Uh, if we were studying it in Genesis, we would go more or look more closely and go more into these individual issues. But that's not really the point here. We don't want to get lost in the forest for the trees here. We want to stay focused on the larger picture. We read then in verse 9, reading from 9 through 16, because the patriarchs, and of course the patriarchs were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, you have Jacob and his 12 sons, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit, and on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. And after this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all, and then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Again, recapping the events that took place in the book or recorded for us in the book of Genesis. Now here Stephen is responding to the high priest question again, are these charges true? By recounting not just that God made a promise and God is faithful to keep those promises, but that he's faithful to us when we go through difficult times. He was faithful to Joseph. Amen? So he recounts God's faithfulness to Joseph. Why is that important? Because the Israelites had been through a very difficult time. And if you look at the life of Joseph, and I recommend A.W. Pink does a great job of comparing the life of Joseph with the life of Christ. If you look and study the life of Joseph, you will see many, many parallels and foreshadowings of the Messiah. That is... Christ's suffering as well. Very similar types of suffering, betrayed by his brothers. That is the kind of suffering that Christ endured at the hands of the Israelites. So what Stephen is doing now is he is using the scripture to make clear the truth of God's word and the truth about Jesus Christ, which is ultimately what he wants to share. So God was with Joseph after his brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph's brothers were jealous of his position as Jacob's heir. That was true of Christ as well. And this account is similar to Stephen's recent persecution by his Grecian Jewish brothers. He was being persecuted in much the same way that Joseph had been persecuted by his brothers. So it's fitting, it's apropos that he would use this account from Scripture to make his case. But God rescued him from all his troubles by giving him wisdom and favor with Pharaoh of Egypt. And Joseph experienced 13 years of suffering and mistreatment in the land of Egypt. And he waited 13 years for God to rescue him from all his troubles. You're seeing a common theme here, aren't you? That sometimes when we suffer, it takes time before God delivers us. I'm not going to go all profit on you today, but I guarantee we're going to go through a time of testing in our country. We're already in it. And many of you are giving up hope, and some of you are saying, well, the Lord is coming back soon, and perhaps he is, but that's not really the point, is it? Of course we're waiting for the Lord to return, but we're to occupy till he comes. There is something that's more important than just staring at the sky waiting for Christ to come back. It's to speak the truth until he does. 
And what we're seeing here is that Joseph suffered, and yet God was faithful to him. I'm telling you, we are suffering. We're going to suffer, but God will always be faithful to us. He was faithful to Stephen. He was faithful to his own son. He was faithful to the apostles. He's he's been faithful to the church, and he's faithful to us. He was faithful to Joseph. God blessed Joseph in every way. Now, he did go through a time of suffering. But God provided for Jacob's descendants through Joseph being in Egypt. This is the fulfillment of God's promise that he would care for them. Otherwise, they would have died out. This was all God's plan. Even Jacob came to the conclusion at one point that all things were against him, but later he realized all things were actually working for him. And God reunited Joseph with his jealous brothers and ultimately his father, his dear father Jacob, And during that time, I want you to think about this, during that time, think about this, during that time, Jacob experienced 22 years of sorrow and grief, believing that his dear son Joseph was dead. But God was on the move. He waited 22 years for God to reunite him with his son. And then he lived another 17 years after being reunited with Joseph. So you and I, we tend to think in terms of weeks or days when we're suffering or when we're praying. I want you to think in terms of months and years. What if the next eight months are some of the most difficult months that we go through? What if the next three years are some of the most difficult years we go through as a church? Does it mean God is not faithful? No, it does not. It means God is faithful and he will continue to be faithful no matter what any man or woman says. And you and I, we need to understand something. A time of suffering is always ordained by God, allowed by God for his purposes. What could that purpose be? Well, let me also, without going all profit on you today, tell you, I believe that we're in the midst of a great awakening. I believe what we're seeing is God working in our culture. You're saying, well, how could that be? How could that be true? Things are so dark. I've been listening to a series of interviews with David and Tim Barton from Wall Builders. A couple of years ago, I had the pleasure of touring the Capitol with David Barton. And he brought us through Statuary Hall, and we toured the House of Representatives. And he, he walked us through the rotunda and talked about the Christian history and foundation of our nation. And one thing I can tell you is that there were two great awakenings in our country since its founding, actually shortly before its founding. The first was in the 1700s. The result of the Great Awakening was the American Revolution. Does that sound like a time of peace? Then there was a second Great Awakening in the 1800s, and it led to the abolition of of slavery, the Civil War. The two Great Awakenings in America led to a bloody conflict. So don't tell me that Great Awakenings aren't messy things. Don't tell me that a time of revival is kumbaya around the campfire. In fact, a time of great awakening, a time of revival, generally ends in bloody conflict. But you see, many Christians don't have the stomach for that. We need to continue to preach the truth. Our founding fathers in the first great awakening, led by such pillars of the faith as George Whitfield and the Wesleys and others, told us the truth And they influenced the lives of many individuals. Men like Benjamin Franklin. Men like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And these preachers influenced them in such a way that they stood for the truth 
and birthed a nation. Not a perfect nation, still not perfect, but it's the best nation you can imagine that's ever existed on the earth. So, that was the first great awakening. But there was one stain on our history that permeated our culture. It was slavery. And there was a man that many people didn't like. He was in Congress. He actually served as a cabinet secretary. His father was a president. His name was John Quincy Adams. And John Quincy Adams despised the immoral aspect of slavery such that as an abolitionist, he moved the nation towards the abolition of slavery during the Second Great Awakening. When I tell you the man was despised, he was despised. They hated him, did everything they could to stop him. Why? Because he spoke the truth. Ultimately, he ended up being a one-term president, and he never lived to see the abolition of slavery, but he took the time to mentor one young man who was also an abolitionist, who also believed in the things that John Quincy Adams believed. And that man was the first Republican president of the United States, and his name was Abraham Lincoln. Brothers and sisters, slavery was abolished during the Second Great Awakening because of preachers like Charles Finney and others who were willing to speak the truth, and it affected the lives of men like Adams and Lincoln and others, such that slavery was abolished. And I'm all for celebrating the abolishment of slavery in this country. But brothers and sisters, awakenings are messy things. They result in bloody conflict. If you don't have the stomach for that, then you'll never be a a person like Stephen. The Lord is looking for people who are willing to stand for righteousness, and it's not going to get pretty. Now, if you want to protect your possessions and your investments and, you know, be able to do this or do that in our country without conflict, well, go right ahead. But when Jesus says to you, I would rather that you were hot or cold, don't be surprised. Brothers and sisters, this is the time for men and women of faith to stand for truth. I've given you some examples from our own history. Stephen is doing likewise. He's giving examples from his history, from their history. We're talking about Jacob here. Jacob and his 75 family members were the fruit of God's promise. God promised that there would be descendants. There were descendants. Now, let me just clear up one thing. The Masoretic or Jewish text says that there were actually 70 family members. Some people look at this and they say, look, there's a conflict. Well, there is a conflict of sorts. Because Genesis mentions 66 direct descendants of Jacob, excluding his son's wives. And when Joseph and his two sons and Jacob are added, the number of individuals is 70. It is. Exodus also mentions 70 direct descendants of of Jacob. Now, this is because Joseph and his two sons and Jacob are included in the number 70, even though they were already in Egypt. Okay, so the number is 75, just, just counting everybody. If, or the number is 70, if you count everybody. Now, the number 75 is interesting because Stephen was a Grecian Jew. And he read the Septuagint, which does, in fact, read in Greek 75. Why? We're not really sure. We're not really sure. So as a Grecian Jew, he's reading the text that says 75, but the Jewish scriptures say 70. There very well may have been a conflict or or a, a, a misquoting of that number. Numbers oftentimes were copied wrong when they were copied from the original Jewish text to other languages. That sometimes happened. That doesn't mean God's word isn't true, but Stephen was reading in Greek from a Greek text. Okay? So having said that, as he 
read from the Septuagint, which does read 75, it's also possible, but probably not likely, that the additional descendants that the Greeks included were Joseph's grandchildren. Regardless, whether it's 70 or 75, what's the point? God was faithful to bring descendants. I mention these things because there are some students here who uh, may be in school, maybe even in Bible college, who are going to have to deal with these things. And so often, people throw out the baby with the bathwater. They go, well, see, the number is wrong. Therefore, you can't trust God's word. Okay? If I write down my phone number and I give it to you, which is unlikely, (laughs) because I hate the phone, and I make a mistake, it doesn't change my phone number. Are you with me? Okay. 70, 75, I'm not going to get hung up on that. But we're also told that the body of the patriarchs, excluding Jacob, were buried in Shechem in the land of promise. Abraham had bought a tomb, we're told, in Shechem from the sons of Amor. He also bought a tomb in Machpelah, we're told, in Genesis 49, near Mamre from Ephraim the Hittite. So he bought plots of land, but he hadn't received the land as a promise. He bought areas within the land just to bury their loved ones. Now, we know that Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah, and Jacob, they're all buried in Machpelah. But here we're told that the other patriarchs, I guess they ran out of space, they, they, they bought another tomb, and that tomb we're talking about here is in Shechem. That's where the other patriarchs were buried. Okay, so we're given a lot of information by Stephen. Where is he going with this? Well, the first point is God had made a promise. He had made a promise to Abraham. The second point is that God was faithful to that promise and faithful to Joseph and worked through Joseph's life in such a way as to fulfill that promise. So at any point, has God been anything but faithful? No, he's been completely and totally faithful to his people. I think you can start to see where we're going with this or where Stephen is going with this. Well, remember, there's this question, are these charges true? And now, this is a lengthy section. I'm going to read it. You're familiar with it. And then we'll comment in verses 17 through 38. He now talks about Moses. Now, of course, especially the Hebraic Jews and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they loved Moses. Moses gave them the reason to live, the law. And they loved to keep the law. So why would he bring up Moses? Well, you'll see. Look at verses 17 through 38. In verses 17 through 38... We read this, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. They went from 70 or 75 to an innumerable amount of people. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. It was the male children, but still, what a horrible thing. Isn't it interesting that when Satan wants to destroy God's people, he always goes after the children? What he did during the Old Covenant was they would would sacrifice their newborn infants. The Egyptians said drown them. Later on, the Canaanites would burn them. But what is it that Satan loves to destroy newborn children? The innocence of children, the future of God's people. Why is that? Well, his tactics haven't changed in the least. Now, he's figured out a way to kill them while they're still in the womb. The Holocaust of abortion, which is murder, is a stain 
on our society and on our culture, indeed on all mankind. Could it be, could it be that this great awakening will lead us to getting rid of that horrible, murderous practice in our culture? You say, that could never happen. That could never happen, Pastor Tim. It's too far gone. 1973, Roe versus Wade, it'll never happen. Don't be so sure. God is on the move. Do you know that this generation, the younger generation, is the most pro-life generation this country's ever seen? 72% of this young generation believe that abortion is wrong. Why is that important? Because God is on the move. See, I'd like to think that as bad as slavery is, as bad as the oppression of a foreign regime over our soil is that resulted in the American Revolution and then, of course, the Civil War, it may come to this, another bloody conflict to destroy and abolish the murderous practice and holocaust of abortion. And if it is, and if it does, so be it. I choose to be on the side of life. I believe in the sanctity of life, all life. But brothers and sisters, I'm willing to speak the truth about it. I'm even willing to die if that's what it takes. Brothers and sisters, there is no room for anything other than the abolishing of this practice. Don't give me arguments about, oh, what about this and what about that? It's murder. It's murder. Is that where we're going? I hope so. I hope we're going to a place where the conflict increases to the extent that we actually are able to abolish abortion. They didn't think it could happen with slavery, and it did. And I have to say, I think abortion is far worse than slavery. Does that make me a racist? No. Because you know what? Guess what children are aborted at higher rates than any other ethnic group? You know. It's African Americans. I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's by design. When you look at the policies of Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger, you, you, you'll find out right away. It's, it's genocide, in addition to being murder. So we see that happening back then. You see children drowned. When, when Jesus was born, you, you had this situation where they killed all of the children that were born in Bethlehem under two years old. Now we have a more quote-unquote, sanitized process, but it's the same thing, and it's the same devil that does it. Well, at that time, in verse 20, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. I know all you parents agree. You don't have ordinary. No one has an ordinary child. Who comes and says, you know, I know it's just an ordinary child. But For three months, he was cared for in his father's house, and when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Now, this isn't right. It's just Moses hasn't learned a few things just yet. It's not justifying murder, but that's what happened. Moses thought, it says in verse 25, that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Boy, news traveled fast. 
even without Twitter. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And after 40 years, he had passed. An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to look more closely and he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, though through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. Now, that's a a lot to take in, but it's a narrative. It's It's a recap. You see many things that are similar about Moses and how he was rejected to Christ being rejected. He's building his case, and he's done a great job, and now he's going to indict them. But before that, let's just go back over this really briefly. Stephen is responding to the high priest's question, and he's doing so by recounting God's deliverance through Moses. Jacob's descendants experienced suffering and mistreatment in the land of Egypt. The great number of Israelites living in Egypt, they're the fruit of God's promises. Because God had predicted that they would experience suffering and mistreatment in the land of Egypt. But he also predicted he would lead them out. Now this new ruler of Egypt forced them to throw their newborn sons in the Nile, but that still didn't stop them. It didn't stop the parents of Moses. God delivered Moses from being thrown into the Nile because he was no ordinary child. God had his hand on this child. He was fair in the sight of God. A beautiful child, the scripture says. Moses' parents were people of faith. They trusted God. They didn't throw their children to the wolves. God used Pharaoh's daughter to protect Moses from the edict of Pharaoh. Isn't there some irony in that? I think so. Moses was well-educated. He became a powerful speaker and a great leader. God was on the move. God was working. And Moses tried to deliver the Israelites from their suffering and their mistreatment in the land of Egypt, but he was about 40 years too early. He was clearly aware of God's calling on his life as Israel's deliverer, and he acted. He waited until he was 40, 40 years old, to visit his people. And then he chose God. And his own people over the people of Egypt, Moses did that before he had an encounter with God. He tried to rescue the Israelites, tried to stand up for them, but they rejected him. Are, are, you, are you seeing the parallel? They rejected him as their deliverer. The Israelites once rejected Moses in the same way that they had now rejected Jesus. So Moses fled. He fled to Midian, lived among the Gentiles as a Gentile. Why is that important? Because remember how the Jews felt about Gentiles. Stephen is a Grecian Jew that lives among Gentiles. So all of what he's sharing, you know, there are certain elements of what he's saying that have implications. Well, God called Moses to believe and to obey his call. To deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. See, Moses was still called. 
Even 40 years later, he was still called by God to be Israel's deliverer. God waited until Moses was 80, 80 years old to call him out of the desert. And then God used Moses' life in exile and obscurity to prepare him to deliver his people. What is God doing in your life right now? Because I guarantee it's in anticipation of what he's going to do in your life tomorrow. God used the additional 40 years to prepare his people as well. They didn't really want to be delivered. Now they did. See, God is working. He's always working in the hearts of his people, in the hearts of those he's raised up. And the timing is important. And it could be 40 years. It could be 22 years. It could be 13 years. Whatever it is, it's in God's timing. Amen? So if we have to wait a couple years, don't get all excited. God is on the move. Moses left a place of serenity and safety and security of his home and family to obey God. Traveled by faith like Abraham. Traveled by faith only this time on a known road to a known and hostile place called Egypt. And Stephen reminds the Sanhedrin that this is the same Moses that they had once rejected. And the words, the very words he says here, who made you ruler and judge, may have sounded very familiar to the Sanhedrin For they had said the same thing to Jesus. They're not being convicted by now. They've stopped their ears and refused to listen. Moses was God's chosen ruler and deliverer, just as Jesus was God's chosen Messiah, and yet they had rejected him as well. God used Moses to deliver the Israelites from their suffering and mistreatment in the land of Egypt. We read about it. Moses led the Israelites for the next 40 years of his life by faith in God's power. And Stephen reminds the Sanhedrin that this is the same Moses that predicted the coming Messiah when he said, God will send a prophet like me. Do you remember? This is what Moses told in verse 37, the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Jesus had fulfilled that promise and they rejected him. Just remember that. They were rejecting Christ. So these words, they really stick. They really make their mark. Moses had promised that God would send a prophet like him to Israel. He had sent many prophets, but now he had sent his own son. This prophet would be from the people of Israel. He would be their Messiah and God's chosen deliverer. So are these charges true, Stephen? No, what you're saying isn't true. But this is the truth of Jesus that you've rejected. Moses received the word of God from God himself on Mount Sinai. He passed it on to them. The angel who spoke, it says the angel spoke with Moses, the messenger, that word angel means messenger. The messenger who spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate, the son of God in human form. We've talked about this before, Christophanes or Theophanes. All of this is leading up to what comes next. And we're not going to look at the death of Stephen today, but this is what leads up to it. Look at verses 39 through 50. But our fathers refused to obey him, that is Moses. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And as this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. This was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. 
Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols that, that you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. Could you close that door, Anthony? It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Come on in, guys. And then we can close the door. Come on in. The tabernacle remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. I'm just going to pause a second while they come in. Come on in, guys. However, stay with me. However, the Most High God does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Now remember, they were talking to Stephen about the temple. He says, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Let's just stop a minute there. Stephen responded to the high priest's question by recounting Israel's rejection and refusal to obey Moses. Have you rejected God? Are you refusing to obey him? You don't want to be in that place. Oh, the Israelites, they wanted to return to Egypt to worship idols made of gold. They rebelled against God and his word. They rejected his servant Moses, and they quickly turned to idolatry. And God rejected them for their rejection of him. Oh, God doesn't reject anyone. Oh, yes, he does. He rejects those that reject him. God eventually gave the Israelites over to their desire to worship false gods. Stephen quotes from the book of Amos to confirm that this is true. Their hearts had rejected God. In fact, the Israelites failed to bring God's sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert. They preferred to worship false gods like Molech and Rephon and their idols and sacrifice their children to those idols. But God ultimately brought them into captivity for 70 years. We've been talking about waiting for 13 years, 22 years, right? 40 years. Now we're talking about 70 years. They waited for God's deliverance in Babylon for 70 years. And the Israelites, they had the tabernacle, which was their portable temple. Later, they had the temple in Jerusalem, and they still rejected God. Moses had built the tabernacle as directed by God, that they might worship him acceptably. In fact, Joshua brought it with them into the promised land, and it remained into the land, or in the land, until the time of David. And then it was replaced by Solomon's temple. Now, the Israelites quickly, quickly rejected Solomon's temple as well. 
and turn to idolatry. Do you see a theme? Do you see a theme? Remember, brothers and sisters, Stephen had been accused of speaking out against the temple. He had been accused of speaking out against the law of Moses. And Stephen specifically spoke about their rejection of the law of Moses, their rejection of the temple. It was the people of Israel who had truly rejected God's temple and the law. And finishing our study for today, as I asked Pastor Russ to come up, even Isaiah made it abundantly clear that God does not live in houses made by men. He lives and is and dwells in Jesus Christ. Heaven is like the throne, a throne to God. And and the earth is like a footstool. An earthly temple could never contain the almighty, eternal God, and yet they worship the dwelling place of God, but they rejected God himself. Yes, it was God who was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the body of a man. That man is Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. That's the truth of Scripture. Next week, part two. We'll see what happens when he goes from convicting them to rebuking them. And the truth is preached and the consequences are clear. If you preach the truth of God's word and it's rejected, it may even cost you your life. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would continue to speak to us about speaking the truth and help us to be brave and courageous like Stephen, who spoke the truth to the power of his age and the power of his day, sharing that you were faithful in your promises to Abraham through the life of Joseph and even Moses, and still there were those who rejected you. Lord, may we continue to preach your truth, regardless of the consequences. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.